This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome back to the Over and Back Classic NBA Podcast. I am Jason. Rich, good to be back with you. Absolutely, yes. It's it's one of our, uh, something we don't, I don't know, we necessarily want to do, but we have to do today. Yes, we're going to take a little break from the uh, 70s and talk about the retiring Kevin Garnett. Uh, I mean, it's not like he died. He didn't die. Yeah, he didn't <laughs> he die. Right. Sorry. I mean, he died. To, I mean, I guess as, as far as, you know. Our, our viewing enjoyment, it's dead, but uh, I don't know, maybe Coach Garnett at some point, uh, I, right? I guess it's possible, yeah. Anything I, I would do it. I'd hire what him. I've learned from Kevin Garnett, so. <laughs> I hired him in, in one of the, because uh, in the NBA 2K games, like, ex-players, when they retire, they, like, somehow re, like, over, it'll be, like, 10 years ago, and, like, people don't, like, I'm the only one that's stupid enough to actually, like, sim all the way to, like, 10 years for now, but, like, players will start reintegrating into the coaching ranks, uh, and there was one year I hired Kevin Garnett and uh, Vince Carter as my coaches, oh, nice. and it went very well. Yeah, Sure. Yeah, I, I I put Kevin Garnett as the assistant because I thought he might be a little too heady for uh you, you know as a head coach you don't want him getting tossed uh, too often but I think he did a great job uh, with the X's and O's and game plans and whatnot. Uh, so it's good to know. Well, uh, he, perhaps he has a bright future in there. So <laughs> exactly, I wanted Vince as like the the, the guy to kind of like you, you know butter up the refs, be kind of a little bit nicer. So I think it worked out. Uh, Vince, I, I ended up he ended up quitting and then I hired uh, Steve Nash to do. That oh, well. there you so, go. That's uh... like I got a nice little lineage there. But Kevin, coach Kevin Garnett, let's do it. Okay, I, I'm done. All right, all right. Well. <laughs> We'll talk about the player first, and we'll see what happens with the coach. But, uh, <laughs> okay. Deal. Um, so uh, we decided we would uh, come up with 21 questions about the retiring Kevin Garnett. He was number 21. He played 21 seasons in the NBA. So we, why not? Yeah, that's uh, that's what we're doing. So we're going to look at, of course, different aspects of his career. You know where he ranks among the great players of all time. Looking at some of the stats looking at some of the most important aspects of his career and of course some of the uh, craziest stories and the uh, and, and the fun quotes from his career. He he had a lot of them. He was a a colorful character to put it uh, <laughs> mildly. So he, he's a guy who um there's a lot to talk about. So we will uh, uh get to it. Let's start off with our first question, who was Kevin Garnett? Uh of course he kicked off the prep to pro generation. Uh, paved the path for Kobe Bryant, Tracy McGrady, LeBron James, and Dwight Howard all to enter the NBA straight from high school. And even, you know, the the, the players after that, the guys who did one year of college, like Kevin Durant, I, I, I think he sort of um, helped remove the necessity of really establishing your, seeing yourself in college basketball, showing that as more of a, um, just a, you know, a, a place you don't necessarily have to go to if you're ready, you're ready. You don't need college basketball necessarily to polish you off in, in, uh, for the, you know, transcendent players who are already, you know, great enough to play in the league at that point. I think college helps some people perhaps, but 
but for Kevin Garnett, just creating a new path for these guys and really uh, changing the game um, through that. Yeah, I mean, learning on the job, you know, in an NBA environment for, for certain guys. I mean, the Garnett was, of course, you know, we'll, we'll get to it here in a little bit, but of, of, you know, nobody, people weren't drafting guys out of high school for, you know, 20 years, especially the NBA. You know, ABA, we saw a little bit of, of you know, some guys coming in and all that sort of stuff. But NBA, it had been, you know, 20, 25 years in, in, until that had happened. And then after that, it, it just went like crazy. I mean, the people then were doing it a lot and almost too too much, you know, then thinking everybody's the next Kevin Garnett. Okay, this guy's 18 and he's great. Okay, he can be the next. And there's only a few that could really do it as well as Garnett did or Kobe or McGrady or LeBron or Dwight or whatever. But like you're saying, he, he still opened the path up uh, or reopened it, I guess you could say, for people, even one and dones, people that just necessarily don't think that they need at least three years of, of college before they're ready to be an NBA player and ready to be a great NBA player. Because Kevin Garnett, of course, it took a few years to get going. But once he got going, uh, he proved that that wasn't the path that you know fits for everybody. It certainly didn't fit for him. Yeah, and I mean, he... He was good right away. I mean, it wasn't like he was. I mean, he certainly he obviously had a lot to learn. He was young and, and raw, but he was an effective player pretty much from the get go. You know, especially w- w- once he got into that second year. I mean, he really did take off quite a bit, and and his team was relatively good a- as well. So it didn't take particularly long. But he's also known for his versatility. Uh, I don't think the NBA's ever had a a player with the mix of length and size and strength and quickness and knowledge and passion in one player i mean um he could guard all five positions effectively uh he could be a go-to scorer or he could fit in as a complimentary player uh incredible at rebounding great rim protection very good mid-range shooter and even his passing and ball handling were were very good as well and that the skills he was as, as known for but he absolutely could demonstrate that looking back on you know the video of his career and looking back on the highlights in the key games and stuff um and as uh Britt Robinson uh, put it, he wrote He wrote for the Minnesota Post and covered Garnett's career. Uh, by bounding into the NBA as a seven-foot pogo stick with Inspector Gadget arms and the darting quickness of a jackrabbit, Garnett improved upon Magic Johnson's nascent model for positional versatility and established a new prototype for power forward in the modern game. And that just sums it up really well. I mean, as far as yeah. just being somebody who could do it all in and really do almost everything either excellently or at least effectively. Yeah, I, one one of the biggest memories I have of Kevin Garnett is I actually saw him uh, play in high school. He was playing at a local, uh, there's like a high school tournament, yearly high school tournament uh, that happens here around Christmas time. And his team, uh, Farragut Academy, they came and played. Um, and one of the things he was immediately, you, you know, different about Garnett that I hadn't seen in my entire, and, and I'm still relatively young uh, at this point, but, you know, I still have an idea of what's going on in basketball and I understand the different positions, the archetypes of different positions and all that. And you see Kevin Garnett and you see this guy who's seven foot. And he comes out there, and, and, and in seven foot in high school, you, you know what I mean? Like, you can tell, like, that's just an, an incredible. I mean, maybe it wasn't fully seven foot at that point, but you, I mean, way bigger than anybody else on the floor by, by leaps and bounds. And then he pulls up from three, or then he pulls up from mid range. Then he does like a pick and pop. And it's like, I remember seeing people in the audience that are like, why is it go down low? You know what I mean? Like, what are you doing, man? You got to be out there. You got to be banging with the big guys. Like, you're so much bigger. Get every rebound, be down low. And that just never was his game. And it, it was kind of funny because, you know, you know, that the NBA didn't really know how to handle that when he first came in. He played as small forward this rookie year where they're like, well, I mean, you shoot well, so you can't really be a power forward or a center, right? And it's like, you know, little by little, he sort of broke those barriers. And we look at it now in today's NBA, and it's like, you got to have a stretch four. You got, you have to have a, you know, God, some teams have stretch fives. You got to have a, you know, a center that can shoot from, from deep or whatever. Whereas Kevin Garnett, no, of course he's not the first, but I would say he's one of the best that we look at of like a big man at a legit seven foot that could do all those things, could do the pick and pop, could shoot from mid range 
you, you know, wasn't really a three-point shooter at any point, but was a guy that could really stretch it out to that floor and really stretch out your team from that aspect and, and could could pass from the high post and could pass from, you know, near the three-point line and that sort of stuff where, you, you know, we sort of take that for granted, but this is a guy that's seven foot and was doing that with ease and just almost from the moment he jumped into the NBA and the moment I saw him even in high school was a guy that was just a different type of player than any other seven-footer that I had seen personally. Yeah. There's a story um, from, uh, I think it was from Howard Beck's um, um, Bleacher Report uh, diary of um, uh, oral history from uh, Kevin Garnett. And I was talking to about uh, uh, Kevin McHale, who, of course, was general manager who drafted Garnett and was there for you know the beginning of Minnesota Timberwolves career. And he talked about how, um, like Garnett, all or excuse me, how McHale always wanted um, Garnett to, you know, be more down in the post and like boxing out and, and have better um, fundamentals when it came to rebounding. But Garnett thought, um, you know, that he his skills were better used as far as you know being on the defensive front line as much as possible and then you know once the shot goes off then you know running in and using his length and his leaving ability to get those rebounds rather than being down low already and establishing that position that's interesting um you know approaches between the two legends obviously and mikhail having you know more of the old school approach than garnett kind of bringing in this new approach of you know just doing it in a different way but obviously you know being an incredibly uh, effective player and and having the, uh, I believe, second most defensive rebounds in um, in, in in basketball history. So, um, so definitely, uh, you know, I think he's number one now. I, I think last year he, he passed. He's number one in the NBA, but number two behind oh, right, Gilmore right, if you right, count right. the ABA. So, yeah, yeah, correct, yes. correct, correct. So. Um, one thing real quick, and then we'll, we'll move on here. But um, one thing that I thought was because we always bring up. You know, it was offensive. Okay, he could stretch the floor offensively. He could do this offensively. He could take long shots. He could do mid-range and all that sort of stuff. And you brought it up there, and Howard Beck brought it up. The defensive part of Kevin Garnett, too, is one of the big reasons why, again, he shouldn't have been just sitting down low and doing that sort of stuff because he had such, you know, inspector gadget arms, as that one author said, uh, Roberson said. Uh, you know, he had this just incredible speed and quickness or whatever. You know, we sort of take it for granted now because we have somebody like LeBron James who plays in the league now who can guard one through five. No matter what position you want him to guard, he can do it, and he can do it well. You know, there was a season where he didn't guard anybody and just kind of played in the middle and just, you know, cut off passing lanes or whatever. But Garnett was one of the the guys, especially in the 90s, that you look at uh, of just an incredible defender in that sense where you couldn't run a pick and roll against him because he could guard the point guard. He could guard the power forward. He could guard the center. Just had an incredible propensity for being able to guard any of those positions and be super smart at defense, too. And we're going to get to that here in a little bit where, you know, some of the stuff doesn't jump off at the page. You know, maybe he doesn't have as many blocks as some other guys or as many, you know, steals and that sort of stuff. Maybe he doesn't look like a, a prototypical defensive player of the year type guy who, you know, he did win it later in his career. But he was a guy who, for the long time, was an awesome defender, but it, a lot of stuff didn't show up in the box scores. You know, cutting off passing lanes doesn't show up in a box score stat. You know, being able to guard a point guard and shut down a possession, that doesn't show up. But Kevin Garnett was able to do that and do it super, super well. So he, that's something I always appreciate about him as well, is, is, is not just offensively, but defensively how versatile he was and how he was just able to do everything on the defensive end that you wanted. Absolutely. And um, he had one of the longest careers in NBA history, also one of the most colorful personalities as well. Lots of stories of trash talk, colorful quirks, exuberance, and incredible practice habits. Um, straddled that line between being an intense competitor and a bully, uh, between intensity and insanity, often seemed right on that edge and sometimes went over it. But he was also capable of opening himself up and providing some really heartwarming moments. So um, I, I do think that he just had that... Um, 
such a raw feeling. I mean, he's known for he, he he you know played and acted like he had a like a raw bundle of nerves. Yet he was so disciplined on the court. I mean, everything that he did um, seemed to be full volume. Even even his quiet was loud. I mean, even even it stood out because of just his intensity and um, you know just he just he had this aura around him that um, was just. You couldn't take your eyes off him. Um, yeah, and, and Jonathan Abrams' uh, great uh, uh, book, uh, Boys Among Men, uh, it's all about you know prep to pro and the generation or whatever. They talk about, uh, I, I forgot exactly what it was. I think it was a practice or pre-draft camp or something like that. But Garnett was just like so like high-strung. And the, the teams were, were nervous about that because they're like, this guy doesn't really like, you know, he seemed like he wouldn't be able to, you know, handle a game. And, and he was so nervous and he's, you know, shaking and all this sort of stuff. And the second they start playing, he's fine. And like, he's, he's you know, he never makes a mistake and he's perfect. And it's like, how can a guy who's just so... So high strung and so weird and and all this sort of stuff. Then once the game goes, he never you know really makes a mistake. He, he's just perfect from then on. It, it, it's just great because that's and you get that from people. We have quotes from people as well that talk about just the intensity that he had. And even though he had he was intense on the court, he was he was poised on the court almost all the time. You know there was a few times of course where it would sort of break out, and we'll talk about some of those times as well. But for the most part, a guy who was so high strung like that, you would think would would just would never be able to handle and, and channel his emotions. And he was for the most part able to do that over the twenty one seasons that he played. Save for a few moments again that we'll talk yeah. about a little bit later. But yeah, that's a moment again where he's even 19 and they're like, well, this kid's, you know, this kid's can't handle it. It's always way above his head. He's nuts. And then they play and he's like, oh, never mind. He's, he's way mature beyond his years. Once he gets on the court, he's just kind of a, you know, a, a weird fella off the court, which is fine. Sure. Yeah. And he definitely, there was a narrative for a while early in his career that he, um, you know, the, um, he would work himself up to the point where, you know, he had a hard time coming through in the clutch or, you know, he, he did, there was some, you know, mistakes in games that he made that kind of fit into that. But obviously, you know, once he went to Boston, all of that, uh, all that stuff went away. Um, and you know, how true it was in the beginning is questionable at best. So yeah, one thing that sums up a KG for me is his, uh, his habit of preventing an opponent shot from going in after the play was whistled <laughs> yes. dead, either by blocking it or extra grabbing the ball, you know, from anyone else it would come off as pointless and petty and, and maybe it was, but from him, it just seemed necessary. Yeah, I, it's it's. I always thought it was kind of <laughs> a dick move, but uh, you know what? It works. It works for him though. It, it it's it, definitely like. And every time he, he and people would ask him, and he'd always defend it of like, "Oh, I don't want them to you know feel confident." It's like you know what? Hey, like it's not bad. Like it 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 works. <laughs> you know, in the in the in the psyche of the game and the mental game, it, it it works. Like I could see that kind of annoying me when I put up a shot and the guy just you know grabs it out of the <laughs> the air or whatever. But yeah, it's it's. I always found it kind of fun, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I always kind of rolled my eyes at it, but now that it's gone, I, I kind of miss it. <laughs> There you go. So, um, so where does Kevin Garnett rank among players by the numbers? Yeah, so a lot of numbers here for Kevin Garnett. It's just crazy. 15 All-Star games, 12 uh, All-Defensive teams, 12 All-NBA teams. Uh, as we mentioned at the top of the show and why we're doing the 21 questions, he played 21 seasons. Uh, he played nearly a full season of games more than Duncan. He played 70 more games than Tim Duncan. Uh, and he edged, uh, edged uh, Kobe Bryant by 116 games as well. Uh, if he had played this season, so if he had played this season, he would have had more active seasons than Robert Parrish or Kevin Willis, and he would have effectively been the longest tenured player in NBA history, but of course that is not happening, which is very disappointing, but that's fine. We still get 21 seasons of him. As far as ranking amongst his contemporaries, uh, Nylon Calculus's uh, Andre Snellings had a great piece that's up this week, uh, of course, on nylonkalculus.com, uh, looking at Kevin Garnett, where he places among his contemporaries, and it's really like... 
you know, you could basically frame it as him being one of the best of the generation, if not the best of his generation. Uh, Andre, he uses uh, regularized, uh, regularized adjusted plus minus, which we'll just call RAPM uh, from here on out, uh, and basically framed him as Kevin Garnett being the best of his generation. Uh, he looked at a data set of uh, every NBA MVP from uh, 2000 to 2010. Uh, so it was 10 players overall, nine of which were drafted in the 90s and thus fit into the generation. You know, this is your Duncans, your Kobe's, your, your Garnett's. And he, he added LeBron James in there as well, uh, just to kind of give you an idea. Uh, and among Duncan, LeBron, and Shaq, you know, uh, Shaq was another one in there. Uh, those guys, Duncan, LeBron, and Shaq, have three of the highest PER scores over the stretch, but Garnett measures out with the best, highest, highest average RA. PM uh, score of all of them. That means it's effectively, and you can go into that, that article if you want to get to the gory math, but it's effectively you, you know, while others may have had more impressive combination of box score stats in the era, more combinations of, of maybe seasons well ranked by, by PR and other things, no other player impacted their team's scoring margin quite as much as Kevin Garnett did over those 12 years. So you look at it, you know, you know no other player was more valuable from 2000 to 2012 than Kevin Garnett, according to Andre and according to that stat or whatever. And and, and the way he frames it, 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 he does really good evidence that you look at it and go, yeah, you know, that, that's something that's right there. Uh, championships added. That's a metric we talked about uh, a few, you know, a few months ago on the show. Uh, Kevin Pelton, who's been on the show as well, uh, sort of came up with it. And when you look at it, um, Kevin Garnett finishes with the 12th best championships added in NBA history. That's 1.15. He's ahead of Kobe Bryant, who was at 0.98, uh, and not far behind Tim Duncan, who's at point. Two seven, who's tenth overall. So he's right there. He's right there as far as you, you know, the greatest of all time in those both those metrics, and which is cool because like I don't know if people necessarily. I think most smart NBA fans would, but I don't know if like you know now that he retires, people are going to go, yeah, that's one of the you know top ten players of all time, or that's a, you know a top fifteen player of all time. I think some people would, but I, I you'd be kind of surprised at how well he does rank in those. Uh, he's the only NBA player ever have the to same reach, history uh, of playoff success that you know Kobe and Duncan. You know, each, yeah, exactly. Yeah, each of the five championships, Garnett had one, and then another Finals appearance, and then you know had a couple of other strong, you know, pretty good one, pretty good run with the Timberwolves to the Conference Finals, and a couple other decent ones with Boston. But yeah, it's certainly not to the degree that. Um, um, that Kobe Duncan did. So that's kind of surprising that, you know, that he is yeah. up that high on that list. Yeah, and Kevin Belton does a good job also. And it's an ESPN Insider article where he sort of frames it as, yes, Kevin Garnett in regular season was this awesome, but there were some struggles in the postseason as well. His scoring averages and a lot of the stuff and a lot of the, even even the higher metrics also sort of went down in the playoffs. So he seemed to be a guy that, that for whatever reason in the playoffs, it, it, it didn't do all that well for him, but he kind of rose up again in Boston. I think a lot of it is, and, and, and Pelton sort of mentions it as well, it was the teammates as well. And it was a little bit easier in the playoffs to go, okay, if we just shut down KG, we're good. Like, you know, Wally Zerbiak's probably not going to take this game over so we're okay so he sort of frames it as maybe it was you know his teammates or whatever but that, that's a way to sort of look at it is that yeah again he, he didn't have that same you know amount of playoff success is that his fault is it a team fault is a multitude of things of course it's probably you know the multitude of things but uh the only NBA player to reach at least 25,000 points 10,000 rebounds five assists 1,500 steals and 1,500 blocks the only one ever to do that and that that's just I think it sums up just what Kevin Garnett was able to do on the court it was it was everything I mean it was literally able to do everything on the court and just accumulate those points uh he averaged uh uh, 2004, which I think is probably his best season, he averaged 24.2 points, 13.9 rebounds, 5.0 assists, 2.2 blocks, and 1.5 steals per game in 2004. Uh, I put up 2010 numbers in every season from 1998-99 through, through the 2006-2007 season. Uh, he's fifth all-time in games played, and this is just strictly NBA. Uh, third all-time in minutes played, 21st in offensive rebounds, first in defensive rebounds, 16th in steals, 17th in blocks, 17th in points, 9th in win shares, 14th in box plus minus, and 4th in value 
value over replacement player. Uh, wins above replacement player uh, ranks uh, his uh, 03 04 season as the fifth best season since 1977 78. And that's the first season when the NBA tracked uh, individual turnovers. And just three players uh, LeBron James, Michael Jordan, and David Robinson have surpassed that total uh, in one season. Is there an argument that Kevin Garnett is the most versatile player in NBA history? And we talked about, you know, all, all the different skills that he has, but uh, Latrell Spearwell, of all people, put it really well. Uh, he can post, he can shoot, he rebounds, he blocks shots, he passes, he runs the floor, he makes free throws. What play in the league does that? Uh, Tim Duncan rebounds and defends a block shot, but he can't do it on the perimeter like Kevin. So, I mean, that's a really interesting way to put it. I mean, if you... You know, you look at the most well-rounded players in NBA history. Obviously, Magic Johnson is up there. LeBron is up there. You know, you can put Bill Russell up there, even though he was not a good shooter, but he could do everything else. Um, you know, maybe a couple other guys who are kind of, you know, um, Dr. J, who are Larry Bird, who are, who are kind of in uh, that vein. But I, I don't think any of them could defend on the level in the other than other than Russell at the at the five positions like Garnett could. No, I, I really, yeah, he, he, he really among like I would almost put maybe the closest would be LeBron James, but even then, um, yeah, I, I still, he's right there. I mean, it's a guy that you look at that you know might be a comp or whatever, but yeah, it's as far as Kevin Garnett as far as for his size and what he was asked to do. I mean, it, it, you, you won't find anybody. Yeah, that I, I would. I mean, I, there's a real argument, for right? It. I mean, LeBron's obviously a better scorer and a better passer. Um, but I don't, I don't think he can defend, um, centers the way that Garnett could. That was right. Exactly. And that's, yeah, that, that's the thing is that, yeah, you, you know, LeBron can guard those people, but like you wouldn't want an entire game where, yeah. you know, LeBron's on the block guarding but, a center, or, whereas it's fine. Yeah. Like Kevin Garnett could have done that. And it was fine. Yeah. And Garnett could probably could shut down almost in any NBA center in history yeah. other than like, a you know, a, a Shaq or a Wilt, someone who was just huge, but, um, but yes. So, um, so there are only um, 36 players all time with um, 15 plus points per 36, 10 plus rebounds per 36, one steal per 36, and one block per 36. Um, and of them, the top four win chairs are Kareem, uh, David Robinson, Akeem Olajuwon, and Garnett. And, you know, you, you, you could put the pure playmaking ability and well-roundedness of, of Garnett up against uh, any of those guys. Yeah, I, I really do. I mean, Kareem is, of, of course, you know, we talk about, you know, the obviously better score and probably better rebounder. But, you know, I don't know if I would put yeah, I mean, Kareem is probably not guarding your point guard very well. No. Uh, David Robinson, super athletic dude. But again, you know, I don't know. And Kim kind of the same way. I mean, Garnett, like when we're making this argument of versatility, like of those four, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to say Kevin Garnett's more versatile than all four. Uh, the other three. For sure. Yes. Yeah. You know, in terms of being able to guard the perimeter, I think he's the best of those guys. Now, you know, those guys are probably all better um, at their peak at, at guarding the inside. But um, but, but you know, Garnett was fantastic at that, too. So it's, it's a hard thing to weigh. Absolutely. So looking at um, looking at defense, um, the the study that you uh, talked about from, um, from non-calculus um, between 2001 and 2012, Garnett measured out as the best defensive player in the NBA over uh, that time, tied with Dikembe Mutombo, just ahead of Tim Duncan. And you know, looking at all aspects of the defensive game, you're talking about uh, preventing your man from scoring one on one, rotations, disrupting opponents' plays, knowing the entire defense and being able to communicate it, uh, and, uh, and, and and taking care of the pick and roll. And no player was better at the entire defensive package than uh, Garnett. I just really had an amazing mix of footwork, communication, length, and lateral quickness, and was great, as we mentioned, both at perimeter defense and at rim protection. Mm-hmm. And 12th all-time in defensive rebounding percentage, 
uh, has the most defensive rebounds tracked in NBA history. Uh, second overall, as I mentioned, to um, Artis Gilmore. And now defensive rebounds weren't tracked until the, I believe, the early 70s. So this doesn't count, you know, Chamberlain, Russell, those guys, but still very high on that list. Um, you know, and the, what, what, what about the other skills that, that he kind of brought to the table? Yeah, I think one of them, a mid-range shooting is one that we talked a little bit at the top of the show, but you, you know, he's another guy who who just was incredible. And um, on Nylon Calculus, again, there was another really great piece by uh, Matt Donata who um, kind of looks at his, his, the shot charts of Kevin Garnett to sort of, uh, you know, show like, hey, this guy was just incredible what he could do and his versatility was just nuts. Uh, and here's what he said, you know, the, the big ticket was a beast inside the arc. As his hotspots indicate, he was dominant in the middle of the paint, a monster at the rim, off the left, blo- off the, off the left block and baseline, and from the foul line extended area. Garnett's shot areas don't start until he's two or three steps inside the arc, completely counterintuitive to contemporary logic. And once they do start, they are just about everywhere. So he's a guy, again, that, you know, when you look at his shot chart now, like we would kind of go, oh, my God, too many mid-range shots and all this sort of stuff. But when you make them all, <laughs> like you're really efficient at them, it's fine. You can shoot as many mid-range shots as you want. So he was a guy that, again, just excelled in that. And and even, you know, he's a guy today that if you plopped into today's game and he just came in today, I, I do think that teams would still just say, hey, you know, you can shoot from the mid-range, you know, we don't like it because you're just so damn good at it and you know he's a guy who would probably shoot a little bit more threes but he's just super efficient in that mid-range and just like for his size and what he was able to do and a shot that didn't always look like the prettiest shot in the world I I, I thought it was very good you know for a seven footer I thought it was, it was pretty <laughs> remarkably nice but I know there were a lot of concerns you know Jonathan Abrams book you know the boys among men talks about where people saw a shot and was like oh that's ugly or whatever but it kept going in so it was like oh who cares you know and then and he made his career out of just being a beast inside that arc a- area especially you know away from the rim you just really really was able to just shoot at a high efficiency his entire life yeah and, and that you know that that uh, mid-range jumper helped space the floor and open things up for his teammates he also was able to you know uh, initiate the offense um you know f- f- from the high post and was able to do a lot of things you know to to create offense for others in addition to you know just being able to do it for himself so and he you know his ball handling i mean he really he did have the handles of a guard despite his size i mean it wasn't like he had like a lot of flashy you know, dribbles or, or things like that, but he definitely was, you know, very capable of, of handling the ball. And also, you know, his incredible leaping and dunking, obviously uh, even more so when he was younger. Um, but, uh, you know, the amazing wingspan that he had and his size just allowed him to, you know, dunk really for some for, for some pretty crazy angles. Uh, you know, even though he wasn't really known as a flashy dunker, he didn't do a whole lot of, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, fancy stuff with the dunking, but he would just kind of go in there and he would just, uh, you know, you kind of kind of come around and just, you know, dunk over somebody or dunk around somebody. And he just had that, um, you know, that speed and that length that just really created some, you know, powerful, incredible dunks. Yeah, they were loud. I mean, that's yes. what I Kevin Garnett dunks is like they weren't the flashiest, but man, were they loud. Absolutely. So what were the uh, some of the best entrances of um, best instances of uh, Garnett trash talk? Well, a lot of them, I guess, are we a PG show? Because I don't know <laughs> some of the stuff I don't know necessarily. Uh, well, a lot of them are really pretty awful yeah. things, too. So we'll, we'll skip some of those. But this one in particular I enjoyed. Uh, this from Paul Pierce, uh, who recounts this in a, I believe it was a Sports Illustrated article. Uh, I'll read the quote here. Uh, one time, Garnett asked Joe Kim Noah if he could rub, it, uh, rub through his hair like a female or something. <laughs> and I know that kind of made Noah hot. And this is when Noah was a rookie, too. I remember Noah looked up to KG. He was like, man, KG, I had your poster on my wall. I looked up to you, man. And then Garnett just said something like that and was just like, fuck you, Noah. I was like, whoa, this kid fresh out of college looks up to KG, just said he had his poster on his wall, and he tells him that? It crushed him. It absolutely crushed Noah. That that, that might be the best one. We we have a few others in uh, further down in some some of the quotes that we talk about, but that one, uh, <laughs> just like... that, that's that's pretty good. So I feel like he's like standing next to him, like, hey, what's up, man? Just like, go to hell. Like, oh, okay. All right. <laughs> like, sorry. Yeah, we have some 
some other ones, but there were many that uh, people were count. Uh, eh, some are, you know, yeah. Charlie Villanueva. He was a little mean to Yes, yeah, he, he, he was. He was. There were definitely times when he crossed. <laughs> I mean, he called Charlie Villanueva a cancer patient. I mean, that's uh, right. That's obviously so that, that. I mean, depending on how what you think of that joke, I mean, that might be one of his better instances. But uh, I kind of found that one a little. Yeah, yeah, but, no, yeah. Was, so there's yeah. there's there's many that are are pretty awful. Well, I mean, but that, that was a man who played the psychological game for sure. Right. I mean, that's kind of he was always in that edge, like we talked about. I mean, there's some of these. Yeah, and, and, and I think pretty much everyone can agree calling somebody ca- cancer patient is going over the line. Some of these I think are more, uh, you, you know, are, are the, the no one I think is more funny than anything. But even mm-hmm. though some of these are obviously, I mean, bullying was part of you, know, you. You can definitely interpret part of what he did on the court was bullying, but it was all kind of a part of getting a psychological advantage. Now, you know, whether the cost of that is worth the, you know, the pain you cost somebody, I don't know. But that's it's, it's part of the NBA, obviously. So. Uh, so looking at uh, what was the ultimate KG game, um, December 20, 2003 versus the Indiana Pacers, 28 points, nine rebounds, six assists, three steals and seven blocks in a win, of course. And then also uh, March of 2007 versus the uh, Celtics, perhaps a reason why they traded for him uh, just a few months later, uh, 33 points, 13 rebounds, 10 assists, three blocks and two steals. So um, uh, obviously some great stat lines there. And then one for uh, a capping off the uh, NBA championship versus the Lakers, June 17th, 2008, uh, 26 points, 14 rebounds, four assists, three steals. And, uh, and, uh, anything is possible, uh, catchphrase at the end. So exactly. Yes. What was his best playoff series? Uh, best ones. Uh, there's three that I picked out that I think really stood out to me. Uh, first one, 2008 versus the Cavaliers at the Eastern Conference semis. Uh, 19.6 points per game, 10.9 rebounds per game. He shot uh, 40, uh, 54.5% uh, from the field goal line, um, or field, field goal percentage, uh, 3.1 assists per game. And, of course, the big story, you know, knocking out the Cavs in seven. That was a, a really great net, a Cavs team at that point, too, and uh, really solidified the um, – it really solidified the, the the Celtics as okay. This is the big three of the Celtics, and we're going to do this. Thing. You know, we're 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 going to be a great team. We're going to win this title, and you know they would end up you know winning that title and coming out of the East, of course. Uh, two other ones that I picked out: uh, 2004 versus the Nuggets. So this is Western Conference first round. Not necessarily a, a, a very notable one, but I think for Kevin Garnett and the Timberwolves, it was notable. First off, his stat line: 25.8 points per game, 14.8 rebounds per game, and seven assists per game. But I thought the most important part of this, you know, of course he knocks the Nuggets out in five games. Not a big deal, but for KG and the Wolves, this was a huge deal because the first time they got out of the first round in seven years that was a constant thing is that kevin garnett and the wolves would get to the playoffs and then get knocked out they get to the playoffs get knocked out this is the first time they were able to break through that beat the nuggets get to the semis which of course leads me to the 2004 semis against the sacramento kings uh just the, one of the best series i think in, in in nba playoff history just an awesome back and forth series uh 23.9 points per game 15.4 rebounds per game 4.3 assists per game and 1.7 steals per game. And, of course, the big part, he knocks out the Kings, uh, him and the Wolves, of course, knock out the Kings in seven to get to the Western Conference Finals, where, unfortunately, they would fall to the Malone Pacer, uh, the Malone Payton, you know, Kobe, Shaq, uh, Lakers, and that would be really the kind of the peak uh, of Garnett and the Wolves. Uh, of course, you know, he'd hang around for a few more years, but it would never really recreate that, never get that far again in the playoffs until he moved on to the Celtics. Yeah, in fact, that was the last year that the Wolves, that the Wolves made the playoffs until, um, it was, no, I'm sorry, they have not made the playoffs since then. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say, I don't, yeah, uh, they didn't any time during and the Kings yeah. wow. And the Kings haven't made it until five, so that's that was right at the end. That They would trade uh, Chris over the next season and, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and re- uh, you know, they would get our test and re-trigger themselves and, and of course, uh, have gone through a lot of rebuilds uh, since then. But 
It's a, it's a series that I know they've played a few of them on the Hardwood Classics as well. They're really fun to watch because you can just – it's definitely the peak of those two teams, and you can definitely see just kind of a change in the guard in a lot of ways where uh, Garnett's just kind of reaching his peak in a lot of ways. Weber's sort of working his way down from it. He had his huge knee injury. So he – you know, he's just not the same player as well, Weber. But the Kings are kind of noticing, hey, we can maybe do this without Weber at full percent, and that what's, that's you know kind of what leads to, to Weber going away, and then you know, the Kings have their issues with Sprewell and a bunch of other stuff. But it's really – I mean, it, it kind of sucks because it's like the end of of the line for those teams so yeah so next question what was the world like on kevin garnett's debut the number one movie ace ventura when nature calls the classic of course sequel to ace ventura right. pet detective which uh i've been a while since i've seen that one um yes which unfortunately when i looked this up i went oh ace ventura i thought it was called pet detective and not when nature calls and i looked up oh wait that's the sequel oh my lord like <laughs> not not no it wasn't very good Pet Detective I enjoyed. I did not enjoy When Nature Called, even as a child. Right, I did yes, not like yes. Um, ten days later, Toy Story would be released, which is much better you know, movie. It's a much better movie. So. <laughs> uh, the most popular song was On Bended Knee by Boys to Men. Um, it's, I believe it's the same album that I'll Make Love to You was on. But uh, Yes, that's, that's, that's a love-making album for it sure. It is, yes. So, um, I'm sure Kevin Garnett was... Uh, I, I'm sure that was that was probably a favorite one for, uh, for him at the time, <laughs> you know, um, being a man who enjoyed his music. Um, at the, at the time that was right as the internet was, uh, sort of in its infancy, the World Wide Web, uh, America Online and Prodigy started to offer access to the World Wide Web, a releasing powers that made it easily accessible for the general public. So that was really the, the launch of the, uh, of the internet as we know it. Um, and the oldest who, uh, played with the, uh, who played with the, actually he was still with the, um, I think he was still with the Hornets. He would go to the Bulls in the next season. And Parrish had played with Rick Barry in his rookie year. And Rick Barry is now 72 years old. So imagine uh, the uh, distance between uh, uh, Barry to Parrish to uh, Garnett. So what are the biggest influences that Garnett's careers had on the game? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few. I think we, we talked about at the top of the show that the number one is probably the prep to pro uh, generation. You know, a lot of new wave of prep to pro players in '95 uh, became the first player, uh, a high school player, in 20 years to enter the draft. Uh, Kobe Bryant and Jermaine O'Neal followed the next year, and then every subsequent draft uh, had at least one high school player taken in the first round until the NBA put a stop to the practice uh, in 2005. And all told, you know, 38 players made the prep to pro leap uh, in the 10 years following Garnett's entry. So I think that's, I mean, that's right then and there. You look at it, and, and it, absolutely, that, that's that's I think his his biggest thing. Uh, other things, you know, defensive style is one that really uh, stands out. We talked about it a few times, uh, but you know, like Flip Saunders, you know, the famous you know Wolves coach, he had you know the luxury of deploying him as the first and last line of defense, depending on which was more crucial to the team's fortunes. Uh, no one was better at single handedly denying all aspects of the pick and roll decision making. Uh, Garnett was long, quick, and smart enough to de- uh, to delay his commitment to guarding either the ball handler or the rolling screener, and he operated in no man's land that would be fatal to most any other player. You know, and we saw we talked about that no man's land uh, defense, which which LeBron started to use. Uh, in that, uh, one of the final you know, heat years, I think the second heat title, that was one of their primary defenses, just have LeBron sort of floating there and guard whoever you know, he wanted to. And, and, and Grant was able to do that. He was able to kind of operate in that no man's land and, and really just do it with, with, with unbelievable um, you, you know, just unbelievable tenacity as well. Flip Saunders said uh, he guarded Michael Jordan at times. He's guarded Kevin Malone, or Carl Malone. He's guarded Shaquille O'Neal. He's guarded point guards, Kevin Johnson, Steve Nash, Stephon Marbury. You just pick the all-stars at some point. He was going to be matched up on all those guys and guard them all. Uh, there have been times when he was guarded all five positions in the same game as well. Yeah. And uh, a few, oh, I go was ahead. saying that those are some good insights from uh, Burt Robson, who wrote a great column on, um, yes. on Garnett's career. 
Yeah, it's called True Grit, uh, Kevin Garnett's Greatest uh, Timberwolf Who Ever Lived, uh, which you can find as, as well. It came out, uh, of course, after the announcement of Garnett's retirement. Also, we mentioned it again at the top of the show, the ushering in the new era of the big men uh, is really a big part as well. This is Andrew Sharp uh, from Sports Illustrated who wrote that. I uh, showed that a big man who could excel in space could be twice as dangerous as one who lived in the post. When future fours followed his lead, it opened up offenses all over the league. The entire sport is played differently thanks in large part to players who grew up watching Kevin Garnett and mimicked his skills. Uh, you mentioned as well, Garnett and Duncan were the pillars of the new age power forward prototype, a paradigm shift that was uh, spurred on by players like Chris Webber, Rasheed Wallace, Dirk Nowinski, uh, Jermaine O'Neal. They came into the league at the tail end of the NBA's Golden Age of centers when Mastodons like Patrick Ewing, David Robinson, and Shaquille O'Neal ruled the, la- ruled the lane. Uh, and this is kind of interesting. In a June 1995 Sports Illustrated, Jack McCollum uh, wrote questions. Uh, this is of Kevin Garnett of sort of understanding, kind of trying to figure out where he would fit in the NBA. It says questions of how long he would take to develop physically, only 220 pounds. Um, and whether he'll fold like a nervous poker player at the first time Kevin Carmelo uh, Malone hips into him into a basket station. So kind of wondering, Jack McCollum was wondering, like many people wondered, yeah, this guy's kind of frail. What's he going to do in the post? Is he going to be able to guard these guys? And it turns out that, you know, he never really packed on a ton of mass. He kind of looked the same his entire career, but it didn't matter. He was still super strong regardless of how he looked and was able to really guard uh, uh, Malone and was able to guard, you know, again, a Steve Nash, a Stephon Marbury, point guards, all that sort of stuff. So he was able just to do an incredible amount of stuff uh, defensively. And also, last but not least, big three team-ups. Uh, we, unfortunately, you know, whether for better or for worse, uh, Kevin Garnett and the rise of that 08 uh, Celtics you know, dynasty established a new blueprint uh, for superstars who had been stranded in dysfunctional organizations across the league. You know, when Garnett forced a trade to Boston in 2007, joining force with Paul Pierce and Ray Allen to form the league's you know, first player-engineered, quote, super team, uh, he didn't meet with anywhere near the same backlash that greeted the Heat three years later. But, you know, it, he still did it. I mean, he, he kind of formed that super team in a lot of ways. And people, I think, in, in a large part where they didn't necessarily do this as much for LeBron, they sort of understood that Garnett had simply done too much with too little uh, in Minnesota for so long. So people didn't necessarily criticize him as much because thinking, hey, this guy led his team for so long and just couldn't get over the hump. That's fine. He can go on and do this, whereas LeBron was sort of seen as, as abandoning his hometown and, and doing all that sort of stuff. But, yeah, I mean, Garnett was really, really kind of started that and, and really paved the way for what LeBron and, and Wade and Bosch were able to do a few years down the line. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, some of our favorite uh, Kevin Garnett quotes. There's, there's a lot. So we'll just pick a couple of our uh, favorite ones. But um, a couple that I really like are uh, Garnett told uh, Jackie McMullen, you can't teach the beast. It's either in you or it isn't. You can't just go to the store and buy a six-pack of Beast. It don't work like that. And then uh, comparing his, his jump shot to a booty call. When I go to dial her up, I want her to pick the phone up. Tonight I dialed and she was right there answering like you're supposed to. <laughs> it's a weirdo. <laughs> how, how about you, Rich? What are your, what are your uh, one that I like. Okay, this is on maintaining chemistry. He says, you can't speed chemistry up. The more you practice, the more you get familiar with each other. There's no hit the fast forward button here. You got Comcast. Some shows you can't fast forward through, though. You know, you got to get through it and watch the silly ass commercials and be pissed, right? This is what it's like. Did I just take a shot at Comcast? Fuck it. I did. So what? I'm a direct TV guy anyway. Anyway, look it. This is just what it is. I'm not helping myself, am I? Fuck it. Anyway, that's what this is. And he, he finished it. He, he ended up rambling on for like another two sentences and just said, next question, please. So he's just like rambling on about nonsense, about fast forwarding on Comcast, which, which does suck when you go on on demand on Comcast and you can't fast forward the uh, the commercials. But uh, it didn't matter because he was a direct TV guy anyway. And then he just said, next question. Please. There you go. Get, get me out of this. I'm getting in trouble. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, we'll get to the uh, we'll, we'll get out of this and get to the next uh, question. Uh, what's the best way to illustrate Kevin Garnett's longevity? I, I, I think there's a couple different ways, but um, you can trace back to 1935 in pro basketball history by just five players. Uh 
Kevin Garnett to Robert Parrish to John Havlicek to Dolph Shays to Leroy Edwards. All of those players played in the same season to each other. So Garnett played a year with, I believe, two seasons with Parrish. Parrish played a few years with Havlicek. Havlicek overlapped with Shays, and Shays overlapped with Leroy Edwards. So it's pretty amazing. You can go, you know, eight, eight, back 80 years in, in uh, 81 years in basketball history just through five players, which, you know, um, does a lot. And, um, um, he played with Terry Porter and Spud Webb in his rookie season, and then Carl Anthony Towns and Andrew Wiggins in his last. Um, Porter and Webb are now 53, and Towns and Wiggins will both be 21 at the uh, All-Star break of the upcoming season. I mentioned he played Robert Parrish twice in his uh, rookie season. Garnett was 19, Parrish was 42. He also played Magic Johnson one time during his brief comeback Uh uh, so uh, obviously cross paths with some of the legends of the uh, previous generation. You know, you've obviously played against Jordan, Carl Malone, and, and those guys. But we realize those guys, you know, lasted until the early 2000s. But you know, just to overlap with you know guys who uh, you know went back to the late to the early age of late 70s is pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. So how much more money has Kevin Garnett earned than any other NBA player? Uh, he did well for himself. Uh, KG has bankrolled a record 335 million. That's more than Kobe, Shaq. Duncan and Jordan, uh, the importance on you know of his contract in NBA history is, is big. It, it you know a lot of people do blame it you know not you know not a hundred percent, but in a lot of ways uh, to driving the nineteen ninety nine lockout, the rookie scale, and really uh, another questions of what, how it limited uh, what the Wolves could do, and the Wolves really being competitive year in and year out is because he just took up such a high percentage of the cap as well. Uh, Jay Adande, who did a, a great piece as well, Kevin Garnett, you know, leaves his generation's most you know influential uh, influential NBA star. He said the, the, that lockout marked the culmination of the owner's extreme reaction to his one hundred twenty six million dollar contract with the Timberwolves, fearful of signing players to deals that exceeded the value value of their franchises. The owners held the line in negotiations until they added maximum player salaries to the collective bargaining agreement. And of course, this new CBA included for the first time a maximum player salary as well as a five-year rookie scale up from three years. Two that would have prevented any team from handing a $126 million deal to a second-year player. So of course, you know, Kevin Garnett was, you know, <laughs> well, of course, well-earned in a contract, I would say, but in a lot of ways drove that lockout, drove the rookie scale, in a lot of ways scared owners and scared, you know, the NBA in general. Uh, but it's an interesting case uh, of sort of of that contract and, and what happened with it. Of course, he's not the 100% to blame. You know, Jawan Howard had a crazy deal as well. A few other guys had just insane money. But the fact that Garnett was so young and got that much money uh, freaked a lot of people out and, and really led a lot of ways to the lockout in the new CBA. Absolutely. And, um, uh, you know, the, the interesting thing is, of course, you know, there's a lot of jealousy between um, uh, between the veterans who were upset with deals like Garnett was getting and other other very young players were getting, you know, just after a couple years in the league because they were getting all this money and, you know, veterans like Scottie Pippen who had, you know, signed long-term deals under, you know, in earlier on and were, you know, making relatively low money. There there was a lot of, you know, a lot of jealousy over money and, and probably the rookie scale helped to, um, prevent that from you know basically now an nba player can't get really get, get big money until they're you know at least seven years in in the league so that sort of keeps the egos in line a, a little bit but yeah the, the the max um salary definitely had a um you know an interesting effect on the nba probably um limited teams more than they would have liked to in certain cases and definitely it it, it you know because basically the timberwolves signed this contract in the old you know um in the old uh, CBA and then you know, had to live with the consequences of that. And, and as we're going to talk about, kind of it threatened, um, you know, could cause some issues with team chemistry and um, and so forth. And what, the big one was what happened with uh, Garnett and Stefan Marbury. 
Yes, of course. Uh, famously, the two, you know, at first they became fast friends, you know, inseparable, soaking in the adulation of City Hungry for Success, a two-man team, both on and off the four, uh, dual faces of a growing franchise, and just, like, there, there's great highlights, too. Like, those dudes were just so perfect together. I mean, Marbear being the, you know, the excellent passer, Kevin Garnett being the great finisher, but Kevin Garnett also being able to, to pass as well and set up for Marbear. Like, the two just, it, it fit perfect. Um, but, of course, uh, there were some issues. When it, beca- when it became uh, Marbear's turn for a new deal, he was limited to a $71 million payday. Uh, Marbear's can't viewed it as an injustice, one uh, that Marbury couldn't reconcile. At one point, uh, the Wolves' uh, VP of Basketball Operations, Kevin McHale, summoned Garnett, Marbury, and forward Tom Gugliotta to his office to talk about a sacrifice and sharing the ball and submerging egos. Uh, KG nodded emphatically, but the message says former point guard, uh, Wolves point guard Terry Porter might have been lost on Marbury, who just didn't quite get it because, of course, you know, it's easy for Kevin Garnett to say because he's got a ton of money where, you know, I want some more money, but I'm not getting it. Um, and then Garnett said, I'm very real with these guys now. I tell them straight up how it is. I tell them that there's only one thing that, that can mess this up, and that's, you know, mess up team chemistry, and that's egos. I tell them because I lived it, because that's what messed up, uh, messed us up with Steph. So him and Steph, of course, uh, you know, had their little, whatever you call it, I don't know. It, I don't know if it's necessarily the two ever hated each other. I think just Steph just felt kind of disrespected by the, the Wolves organization, felt like he should have gotten, you know, more, I don't know if it's more points, more money, just yeah. everything in general. And then, you know, moved on. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily, I don't know if he ever hated Garnett, but it was always this idea that they feuded. I don't know if they necessarily disliked each other, but they feuded for the fact that Marbury just wanted a little bit more of the spotlight mill, a little bit more of the money, a little bit more of the touches, that sort of stuff. Anything that can happen from a normal team, but of course, because they were just so young and they looked like a dynasty on the on the, the come up, it looked so much worse because of that. Right, yeah. And, and Marbury actually was genuinely a very productive player. Now, he, you know, he wasn't much of a defender and there were other issues there, but I mean, they did, he produced incredibly well. I mean, looking at his numbers, if you just looked at his numbers, you'd be like, wow. He was great, and you know, there were other things going on, but he definitely you know, was a talent. There's no question about that, and that does seem like something that really could have worked out, and unfortunately didn't because of the you know the egos. You know, Jack Mullen did a really good job of um, you know um, talking to Garnett about uh, you know and and getting into you know kind of what uh, led that to break down, and, and Garnett how he wanted to you know be a mentor for other people, you know, kind of using that as an example of you know how a team can uh, break down. Um, so looking at what was Garnett's reputation before the 2008 title, it's kind of interesting to look at the, the talent that cycled through in the early years of the um, Timberwolves. Uh, Garnett came in when Christian Leitner and Isaiah Ryder were really there. Um, Leitner was disappointment as a pro, although I think he might have been a guy who, if he'd come around like 15 years later, would have been would have maybe had a little bit of a better career because I think his skills might have translated a little better to uh, the later game. And Isaiah, I agree. Yeah, and, and Ryder was just you know incredibly talented, but just a head case, and um, you, you know, and and they sent both those guys away pretty quickly. Uh, Tom Gugliotta was a good uh, supporting player for um, uh, for Garnett. I mean, he really, um, you know, they 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 played pretty well, but they had to let him go after the lockout because of salary issues. Uh, when they when they traded um, Marbury, they did they traded him for Terrell Brandon, who was a good player and had done really well with Cleveland. But um, he later dealt with injuries and and was small, and, and unfortunately that didn't really work out. Uh, they signed Joe Smith, what ended up being considered an illegal deal, and it cost the Wolves multiple number one picks. So even the Joe Smith, pretty talented guy, but uh, you know um, kind of an underachiever for the most part, and um, you set them back that way. Uh, Wally Zerbeck was a talented scorer, but not a good defender. And he and KG, they, they had a lot of uh, chemistry uh, fit issues. Um, and Chauncey Billups, you know, was around with the Wolves for a couple seasons and actually turned his career around there and really blossomed. But um, they couldn't afford to keep him. So when, you know, he left and obviously went to greatness with uh, Detroit. 
Uh, so it wasn't really until 2003 that when they traded for Sam Cassell and Charles Brewell that they really had any shot of, you know, a, a, after the Marbury trade, up, which was 99 until 2003, was really the first time they actually had a chance to, you know, that 2004 season to really you put together a team that had any shot of, you know, winning a championship. Yeah, you look at that. I, I think it's it's really that team uh, again. That like, if you look at if there was any chance that he could win a title in Minnesota, which was our next question, and I think it's really that 2004 team that you look at and say, okay, that that was the team that really could have had a chance. And I think one of the interesting parts that you look at, and and they even mention it uh, in a lot of those Harvard Classic games that I was watching, is that like it sucks that these two teams are in the West right now, and it's like the West is such a powerhouse at this point. Like we look at it, you know, the Kings were great. Um, you, you know, the Lakers were obviously just a, a, an un, you know undying dynamo. You know. That was just like hanging around for forever, you know, and, and you had the team like the Wolves who, despite, you know, winning 60 games and doing well or whatever, just couldn't get over the hump, could not get past the team. I mean, they would have just been a runaway, you know, first seed in the East that year in, in 2003, four, they were the fourth seed in the West. Like they just, that was it. Like that was, and they, they, you know, they got through everybody else. They got to the Western conference finals, you know, and it, it's just, you know, they faced that Lakers team. They faced just a great Lakers team that had, had stacked up with Peyton and Malone and, and that just killed it. I mean, that was the end for them. And, and it just never really got to that point again. You know, we'd taken those teams, you know, the, the Wolves for eight seasons consecutively to the playoffs, but they could just never get over the hump. And, and you do wonder if they were in the East, if that would have changed a bunch of stuff, if that would have done anything. Uh, but it, it just, it, it didn't work out. But yeah, I really look at it. Like if you ask the question of, Hey, you know, could they have won a title in Minnesota? It, it's really 2004. It looks like the time that they could have done it. Everything came together. The supporting cast was there. Everything was there. It just didn't happen. And then it just didn't, that, that cast didn't hang around long enough to get another try. Cause it was that it was basically one and done. And then they were all kind of gone. And, and that was kind of the peak of, of the wolves. Right. Yeah. I mean, they had, um, you know, Spr- 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 was 33 and Cassell was 34. So they were, those guys mm-hmm. were obviously near the end. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that team really, they, they, other than Garnett, I mean, they did not have really any good bigs at all. And I mean, it really was a team that Garnett was carrying and, you know, obviously, uh, you know, it was pretty thin after that. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I do think 2004 was obviously the, the best, um, possible time. You know, it's interesting to kind of look at, um, Garnett's relationship with Flip Saunders because, you know, he was his coach the, you know, almost his entire time in, um, Minnesota and um Britt Robson talked about how they were, you know, kindred spirits. They they were both voracious students, but discerning pupils of the game. And they would really um, just had a were very um, connected almost, you know, empathically about the game and about like how they, um, you know, they were close personally. But they also had a very much a way of understanding each other, and understanding the game and dealing with, um, you know, each other's. Uh, temperaments and and so forth. So it was obviously a, you know, quite a great um, uh, you know a relationship that they had. And of course, very sad when um, when Flip died last year and and Garnett's reaction to it. Obviously, when you know sharing his feelings about how much he cared about um, you know Flip just through that that photo that he um, you know that he shared later. And um, you know just quite quite a um, I don't know if we know a whole lot about their basketball connection, but they obviously just it obviously meant so much to Garnett. Um, yeah. So uh, looking at how it all came together in Boston, 2007 offseason, the Celtics first acquired Ray Allen in a trade to join with Paul Pierce, and that paved the way for Garnett to agree to a trade with the eager to rebuild Timberwolves, still, rebuild, still rebuilding now, of course. Um, Ray John Rondo, Kendrick Perkins, also key young players that were there. Rondo was only in his second year. 
Um, they were also boosted by James Posey and Eddie House, Tony Allen, Big Baby Davis, Leon Poe, and then P.J. Brown and Sam Cassell came around for the uh, late in the season and played were pretty strong in the playoffs. And um, in that Howard Rebeck oral history we talked about, um, Doc Rivers shared a story about the first uh, meeting with, with the Big Three. And he said the first thing he talked about is, "Hey, we all say we're going to win a title, but what are you going to? But what are you going to give up?" He challenged us right away. He was not effing around, and I love that about him. So um, they was able to. It's really fascinating how quickly they came together. I mean, yeah, they, they were just they were great right away. There was not that kind of period adjustment like LeBron's Miami teams. Um, he set the obviously Garnett set the tone and keyed historically great defense, but the pieces fit together almost perfectly. I, I think part of it is where the three of them were in their their careers. You know, they were all you know in their very late very late 20s, early 30s. They all the way their skills meshed very well with Allen's shooting and you know Pierce's slashing and, and Garnett's versatility. I think all fit very well, and they were all kind of had reputations as okay, these are good players, but, um, you know, they haven't really won anything. So, you know, what's going to happen? And obviously it was kind of a perfect storm the way that it came together. Yeah, that, that's one thing that I just remember watching that team is that just like right from the minute they played, you were like, oh, this is a problem for the rest of the NBA because it, it just fits so perfect. Whereas, it, like you said, those LeBron Miami teams, they weren't sure, okay, who's going to possess the ball? Who's taking it up? Who's who's the primary scorer? Who's this sort of stuff? Whereas that Celtics team had no problem. Like you're saying, they were just such complimentary pieces and fit so perfectly. And each guy was eager to sort of help the other and, and, and really, and not to say that LeBron Miami, you know, they weren't eager to do it, but it was just like a bigger adjustment for those guys. Whereas Kevin Garnett was fine, you know, hey, I, I don't care, I'll pass out of the high post and I'll take him you know he, he didn't need to have the ball every single time you know Pierce didn't need to have uh, you know dribble the ball up every single time and do his sort of thing having a guy like Rondo was great too a guy who just is, is simply like hey look I don't want to shoot at all you guys shoot I'll just pass to you that's fine Kendrick Perkins a guy who says hey I'll just get some rebounds for you and Ray Allen who's a guy who at, at that point had kind of said hey I'm done doing the you know I'll just be a catch and shoot guy I'll just be a better shooter than anything you know I'll be the best shooter in history I don't necessarily have to possess the ball every single time and be the go-to guy so it, it just everything fit perfectly and I just remember seeing that team initially come right out of the gates and you just knew oh my god the, the rest of the NBA is in for some trouble because these guys just got it and I, I wondered if it was ever going to end for them like, it just seemed like it was such a perfect storm for so many years by those guys yeah and they were that season their top 10 all time in SRS I believe 10th overall and um, they did struggle a little bit in the playoffs but they made it through and obviously were pretty dominant over the Lakers in that uh, finals after having a little bit of a hard time with Cleveland and Detroit before that um and their success was cut off by Garnett's injury in 2009. Don't, don't sell your Hawks short. Did your Hawks take him to seven? They, they did take him to seven, but they, they, yeah. they lost by 40 in Game Seven. So I mean I'm that'll just, happen. But hey, you know, hey, 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 hey! I, 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 hey. I have some bad memories of that game. So <laughs> hey, I think it was only 37, wasn't it? It wasn't 40, okay. right? Wasn't it only 37? I, I think I, but, yeah. I do. I do still cherish the memories of Zaza Pachulia standing up to a Garnett. Uh, so Garnett was always kind of a villain for me because of because uh, because of that for other reasons. I, I was kind of. <laughs> Even though we're doing the Garnett appreciation, I always kind of viewed mm. Garnett as a, uh, a as a villain on on those level. But yes, uh, can you imagine what would have happened if your your Hawks had beat them? Like oh, oh that would have that would have been the, the nation would have just went nuts. That would have been anyway. uh, that would have been St. Louis spirits all over again, you know. But uh, <laughs> right. anyway, um, so yeah, they're you know they really could have you know had that probably dynasty level potential of um, you know, maybe three championships in a row. Cause they, um, you know, they were, would have been the favorite known and had they been healthy. And then they got to game seven against the Lakers in 2010. And uh, you know, and still, even though they were getting older, were a, but as Rondo developed, uh, they were a tough out for the heat in 2011 and 2012, obviously losing those times, but they were up three, two in, um, in one of those series and became very close to knocking, uh, I believe in 2012 to knocking um, 
uh, the the heat out of the playoffs, which obviously would have changed the course of NBA history in a lot of ways. So, um, uh, but yeah, so you know, unfortunately for them, they didn't quite get what they got, but they did have you know, obviously, it's still a pretty great run. Yeah, I think even though they only had that that you know the the ones people still regard it as you know a dynasty. You know what I mean? Like I I still hear that word and I don't I don't I don't scoff at it even though which yeah. is good. We don't uh, necessarily uh, define right. it exactly by rings. We define it as like these guys for you know a five year period were pl- major players and and had a chance to win a ring every single one of those years, which counts as a dynasty. It's not always if you win in the end. Yeah, you know? I, I, there probably is a, a a a term that's slightly less than dynasty that probably be more appropriate. But we don't really have that word, so mm-hmm. we'll, we'll 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 be fine with this. So. Hopefully no one will get too mad at us. Um, so did uh, did KG have the greatest pregame warmup? Uh, it's pretty close. Here's here's sort of a, an oral history of the uh, the pregame warmup of Kevin Garnett after the national anthem and the player introductions after his team's last pregame huddle. Garnett peels his warmup clothes off and walks over to the basket and faces the padded station. The arena is buzzing around him, but he sets himself to the side, a solitary figure. Eyes down, he leans his forehead into the padding and begins adjusting his uniform, tucking his shirt into his shorts, stretching the elastic waistband, tugging on the drawstring all the time. He is mumbling under his breath. Things are are simmering at this point, but Garnett is only beginning. Shorts tied, Garnett banks his forehead against the pad twice, hard, slaps it, and then he stalks toward the bench, pausing for a moment always to bounce on his toes, where he acknowledges his teammates, his coaches, and other team staff members he bumps his fist and performs a few personalized handshakes once he reaches the scorer's table he pours talcum powder into his hands and claps that uh, claps them puffing the stuff into a small dense cloud and he did this every game like yes. and and i think uh sam mitchell is quoted as saying he was kind of a weirdo because he did this from like game one until his final game and like everything was exactly the same every step was the same every punch every single thing was exactly the same every single game no matter who they were playing where they were whatever they were doing same thing every time uh, Yes. Pretty good. I wonder how many times he banged his head during those. Uh, yeah, times. that's probably not good. Yeah. He might have CTE. <laughs> he might <laughs> want to get that checked good. out. No. <laughs> Hopefully not. Hopefully not. Um, so how did teammates feel about KG? A um, lot, lot of great uh, quotes from uh, his various teammates. Uh, Sam Mitchell, uh, in, in that oral history um, that we've talked about, uh, said that first day, Doug West, myself, we knew first day. I remember walking off the court. We looked at each other and said, one day we're going to tell people we played with Kevin Garnett. And uh, Avery Bradley talked about how um, when 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 he came to those doors on game day, he was angry. We couldn't laugh, talk, listen to music. We all hide the training room or the bathroom wherever KG wasn't. And um, <laughs> and Jackie McMullen talked about how um, you know even though the the reputation for Garnett is that he you know was. Um, uh, you know, like he hated everyone else in the league that wasn't his teammate. He still definitely had a, you know, he, he makes a list of teammates, uh, a former teammates who dealt with uh, a, a lot of harsh treatment from Garnett, whether it's uh, Big Baby Davis, Mason Plumley, Ray Allen, Wally Zerbiak, Rondo, Rashon Osterovich, Patrick O'Brien, or Darren Williams. Um, and uh, Danny Age says, if you don't meet his expectations, he has no use for you. And uh, and Billups said a quote about, you know, that just because someone doesn't play with the same fire as KG doesn't mean they're soft. It also doesn't mean they don't care. But in KG's raving, crazy mind, that's how he sees it. If he sees something one time, that's what he believes in no matter what. That's not always great for a leader. I admit that, but that's who he is. And Sam Cassell says, he's got a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde thing. Off the court, he's a great person. Great conversation. But on the court, he becomes a maniac. If you don't have that same color jersey as on, you're against him. So as we talked about, that that edge where... Um, you know, so many teammates love him, but he also, you know, um, alienated people too. And, and maybe you could say that's a process of weeding out weak 
teammates and, you know, he obviously had successful teams, but, or maybe there's a side of it where it's, you know, um, going a different, maybe being going through a different way may have been more successful, but you know, that's not who he is. So you can only be who you are. Absolutely. So how did opponents feel about uh, Kevin Garnett? Well, not not as not as glamorous. Uh, Dirk Nowitzki, uh, Dallas Mavericks forward, of course, says my rookie year. He was all he, he kind of went at me a bit. He was talking some crap out there, but that was fun for me. That was the first time really experiencing that in Germany. Nobody ever really talked to me like that. I think they actually helped me in a way to grow up in this league. Um, and sometimes even opponents are graced by that softer side. Uh, younger Dwayne Wade said uh, it was when uh, Garnett went out of his way to encourage him early in Wade's rookie season in 2003. Uh, Garnett, uh, Garnett followed up the next summer too, seeking out Wade in Miami to offer his guidance and support. Uh, and countless young players have mentioned. Garnett, uh, you know, over the years as just being, you know, really helpful to him. Uh, Chris Bosch uh, spoke very highly of me, revolutionized the sport. Um, he said I, he was a young fella being an all-star, taking the rebound and pushing it down the court and finished it with a dunk. I'd never seen that before. So I was like, if I want to be in the NBA, I've got to do that. So that's, uh, again, another guy who definitely, you know, watched KG and, and mimicked his game a lot of way in that. Uh, Kevin Johnson says uh, his arms almost stretched from sideline to sideline. He was quick as a cat. And when you try to take it to the rim, he was able to swat everything on top of that. He had unlimited energy and effort and he never never stopped talking. Luckily, I didn't have to face him too often because by the time he hit his prime, my time in the league was winding down. Yeah. So complimentary stuff there. Um, right. You know, there's, there's of course, we'll talk about some other stuff later where people weren't necessarily all into coming or not, but I think most people sort of understood that that was part of just the game and didn't really take it as seriously as some. I mean, there was obviously moments where people did take, you know, him seriously, but I don't know if there's any, like, I don't know if there's a ton of players that outwardly hate him. You, you know what I mean? Like, now that it's all said and done, I think most understand sort of what he was trying to do and what and, and, and what sort of motivated him, but I'm sure there are a few that maybe <laughs> try, Maybe Charlie Villanueva. Yeah, he, I don't think he enjoyed Yeah, I thought much, it was but. interesting, Dwayne Wade's uh, story about how, like, Garnett kind of sought him out and, you know, offered him guidance and support, because it's usually the... um uh, you know, the, the, the Garnett has such a reputation of not really um, reaching out to anybody who was his teammate. It's interesting that Wade's experience goes kind of against that narrative. Mm-hmm. Now, Wade, maybe the Chicago link between Wade and Garnett. I know Garnett didn't grow up in Chicago, but he obviously had, had some roots there. And, and Wade, you know, having Chicago roots, maybe that has something to do with that. I don't know, but it's, I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. So, Rich, would you delay signing a $120 million contract for Janet Jackson? Uh, I would not, but Kevin Garnett would. Because in the fall of 1997, his agent, Eric Fleischer, had phoned Kevin Garnett uh, to notify him that the agreement on his contract extension had finally been consummated. The Timberwolves were set to hand Garnett at the time, uh, who would have been midway through college had he went to college, but instead was in the NBA. They were going to hand him the most lucrative contract, not only in basketball, but in all of sports. All Fleischer needed was Garnett to come to his hotel and sign the contract before the deadline. They had just one hour. Garnett finally responded after many calls. He was at Lake Minnetonka, home of his friend, music producer Jimmy Jan. They were busy. And Fleischer recounts this quote from Garnett. We were listening to Janet's album. Jan was previewing a copy of Janet Jackson's The Velvet Rope for Garnett. Could we do it a little later? Yes. <laughs> Fleischer said, no, we need to do it now. Yes. So, so, yeah, that, that, unfortunately, yeah, that, they had to pause The Velvet Rope for a few minutes so Kevin Garnett could sign the most good of contract in sports. Yeah, there's a version of that story in Boys Among Men that's great, too. So that's, uh, <laughs> uh, that's, that's a good one. That's, uh, you know, it's funny. I would not. I think I no. would run and sign that contract no, and no. then go with Jan Jackson. Jackson were, but, you know. If Jan Jackson were there, maybe I might. But that's a, Yeah, that's a different yes. story. You know, 1997 Jan Jackson especially, yeah, uh, yeah. I, that, could, that could change a lot of <laughs> things. I, I think I'd still go with the money, um, but it, it'd be a closer debate than it would just, you know, listening. Fair but, enough, yes. fair enough. Um, so was KG the last player remaining of the 16-bit video game era? He was. 
It's a little, uh, it was a little strange. Kotaku came out with this uh, yesterday and we tweeted it out and many, many people retweeted it, an insane amount of people. It was kind of funny, but he is the last player of the 16-bit era. Kevin Garnett's retirement from the NBA uh, was a sad day for the Timberwolves fans, but it was also a big deal for sports video game trivia nerds because with KG out of the game, there is no longer a link between the 16-bit era and the modern NBA. Having dreamt uh, straight out of high school, of course, into the NBA's 1995 draft class, Garnett was on the roster of NBA Live in 1996, which was on both the Genesis and the Super Nintendo. And now that he is gone, and now that Kobe is gone, there is nobody left from the 16-bit era of video games. Damn it. Damn it. And so, Over. I'm old. Yeah. I remember that game. I remember that game live in 1995. Oh, I'm so old. I know. He's gone. I have, no, I, don't, I have no link to my history anymore. And I, I, I you know... And I'm, I'm That's all right. Maybe there's a podcast that talks about uh, old basketball. That <sighs> I would, there isn't. Where? <laughs> Where, Jason? I'm looking on iTunes and I can't find all right. it. You know, if, is right. there anywhere I can find it? How do I look for it? Where do I, what do I do? Maybe if you search for over and back. Over and back? Okay. Yeah. I'll do that. Uh, when we're done with this, I will do that on my iTunes and I will see. I, I also have Stitcher and TuneIn Radio, so I will try okay. it on all three of those That's as well. That's a good idea. And, and wherever I get my podcast from, I will try that as well. Yeah, maybe so. you should leave ratings and reviews on those places as well. It might be a good idea. Oh, okay. All right. When I, if I find if, it. If you find is yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> just, okay. All right. All right. Um, so last question. What are our favorite KG is acting crazy stories? <laughs> this could be a long yes. one. So, well, now, are we doing this as a separate episode? Of course, well, here, right? right? Well, we'll just okay. we'll go through a few of them um, briefly. I think um, uh, some of my favorite ones are um, uh, bending over and barking like a dog at Jared Bayless, uh, blowing in <laughs> David West's ear to get technical, uh, pretending to bite Dwight Howard. Uh, these are actually separate instances of Dwight Howard. One of them is trying to pretending to bite him, and then later getting in his face and headbutting him and shouting, "Paint your face, clown!" Those are uh, those those are pretty good ones. Um, and then Tyron Lue saying that he uh, that Garnett headbutted his wall because singers on making the band weren't competitive enough. <laughs> one of my great ones. Uh, it was Garnett. He was forbidden to take the floor by his own coach, of course, Doc Rivers. Uh, so instead, he tracked the movements of power forward Leon Poe, who sort of took his spot, uh, the player who had replaced him in the lineup. As Poe had pivoted, so did Garnett. As Poe leaped to grab a defensive rebound, Garnett lost himself to corral an imaginary ball. Rivers had enough of this. He said, KG, if you keep doing this, I'm canceling practice for the whole team. That will hurt us. And, so, and then eventually did it. end up canceling practice. And then, you know, <laughs> so... That really typifies uh, Garnett, I think, just because of the like, you, like he can't even sit out of practice because, no. like, you know, that would show some sort of weakness, or that would mean like he's not doing it the right way, and so it's just this whole, um, you know, like I have to get an edge in this way, or I have to do that, you know, it, it just seeing this really small thing, but not necessarily seeing the whole picture. Although, like I said, um, <laughs> things were not fine for Garnett, but that's just sort of that just very much typifies, you know, what he kind of was. Absolutely. A Nets rookie, Mason Plumley made the mistake of ordering his food on the plane before the veterans. Garnett was not going to stand for that. Not only did he take Plumley's crab cakes and give them to Reggie Evans, but uh, Garnett then made Plumley serve the rest of the veterans their food. Uh, another time, the Nets rookies forgot to bring the boombox for a flight. That's a big no-no. So Garnett sent all the rookies off the plane to run through plays on the tar rack, <laughs> which is just to have a visual of that, of like... It's just like Mason Plumney and whatever the Nets rookies were, just like running through plays on a tarmac would just be absolutely incredible. It's some good stuff, yes. And of course, his insistence on being called 6'11 instead of his actual 7'1 person. <laughs> right. that's, uh, uh, I don't know if it's quite crazy, but that's just a, uh, it's almost like a why bother type thing. But I guess, you know, if, if you're tall, you're sensitive to the whole thing and you just, you, if you want to be called 6'11, I guess you can be called 6'11. 
Or and I guess there's also the the instances of him kind of coming up through the league, and, and we mentioned it again, and, and you know, Boys Among Men mentions that too, where the second people heard, oh, seven foot, okay, big man, and it's like I'm not really like I'm like a kind of a big man, but I like doing this stuff too. Whereas if like you're seven foot, and I think there's a quote in that book as well, it says like I wanted to be six eleven because when you're six, you know, you know, you're you're six eleven, you can still shoot and you can do all that. The second you're seven foot, people get this idea in their mind of oh my god, you're this monster big man or whatever. Whereas he said they didn't necessarily get that when it was six eleven. Again, that's maybe what he told himself in his head, but it, it's still. I, I get it. Like seven foot has a different connotation. When I think of a seven footer, there's something that immediately comes to your mind, and and it's not Kevin Garnett in a lot of ways. Yes, I. Um, that, that's a good point. Although you would figure like a couple years into his career, like I mean, I guess once once you're six eleven, <laughs> I guess you're always six eleven. So yeah, you know, then you got to stick with it. So. Yes, you got to stick with it. So fair enough. So um, or I, I always I always enjoyed Flip Saunders calling him six foot thirteen. You know, that was the, uh, the, the yes. <laughs> right. so. Um. So, um, uh, so anything else? I think that's it. Um, just a guy that, that, you know, I always had kind of a love-hate relationship with with Garnett. I think you sort of did as well, as you mentioned. Like, he's a guy that now when it's all said and done, like, you can kind of be like, ah, you know what? I enjoyed watching him play. I enjoyed this sort of stuff. You know, there were times where he kind of made made me mad. But I'm assuming that if I was a Boston Celtics fan or a Minnesota Timberwolves fan or a, you know, Brooklyn Nets fan, I, I would, you know, I wouldn't be as upset by Kevin Garnett. I would enjoy it. He's one of those guys that I think you would you love what he does when he's on your team because he's doing it so you guys can win. Everything that he does is to win and to win a championship and to win a playoff game and win the like everything that he did his entire focus was win 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 whereas you know if you're against him he's annoying the hell out of you and you're you know you're he's stealing you know balls and people you know timeouts having all sorts of stuff and that annoys you but if he's on your team like you love that guy and, and i see now you know and now he's retired we can sort of appreciate that a little bit more and look at, at his career as a full and you can see why that was so admirable and why people loved him so much and just like when you look at his versatility and how highly everybody speaks of him is how versatile he was and what he's able to do and how revolutionary he was to the game you really then appreciate a little bit more of what he was able to do um, especially at that time in the 90s and I think there was a few people that even said that he was one of the few one of the guys I mean there wasn't just one guy but he was one of the few that bridged the gap between you know Jordan and then what we get today you know with the LeBron and those sort of stars I mean there's there's Kobe there's Duncan there's Garnett and there's a few other guys but Garnett is one of those guys and and that needs to be appreciated uh, absolutely yeah and he was um you know like Kobe was a, a guy who you loved if he was on your team but you 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 had that love-hate relationship of realizing that they're incredibly great but also they make you mad because of what they do on the court and um you know and and, and a lot of times it's because they beat your team so um but yeah he's an incredible player it's been fun to uh, talk about him and uh wish him the best obviously as whatever he does whether he gets into coaching or whether he's just going to be in your video game dreams um either way we're uh we hope for the best for kg so uh thanks everyone for checking us out as we uh, alluded to earlier you can find us on itunes and stitcher and wherever you find your podcasts uh, please leave us a rating and review if you're down with that uh you can also uh, find us at harvardprocessor.com and uh if you uh, want to leave us a comment on this uh, let us know if you uh anything that you thought we should have gotten into or compliments are accepted as well and uh we're also on twitter and facebook at over and back nba so if you uh, want to get in touch with us on those platforms as well we would greatly appreciate it so uh until next time thanks for listening we'll be back in soon
This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.